Hi, this is Chad. I'm so glad to be part of your journey once again towards product mastery so you can develop products that your customers love. And today we're talking about product pricing, a topic we have not hit for a while, but certainly very important to us as product managers. And specifically, the best practices for pricing in the B2B software product arena. And joining us is Chris Mealy, who has spent his 25 plus years in software product with much of that as in time as a pricing specialist. He is the managing partner at Software Pricing Partners that focuses on helping software companies develop better products and better pricing strategies and focused on the pricing part of that, including helping companies like IBM, Dell, Cisco, HP, McAfee, Microsoft, and others, of course. And remember, listeners, if you want to go back to the written summary of anything we talk about, we do take detailed notes for you. We also prepare a one-page action guide to help you put into action immediately the key takeaways that we discuss You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash 376. Chris, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me, Chad. So the, the first question is, you know, when I was a little kid, I, I got involved in engineering sort of things, right? I, I found my way into electronics and thought, you know, maybe one day I'll do something. I was never waking up in the morning going, man, I really want to help with pricing. How did you find yourself interested in product pricing? Well, so that you and I share a common thread there. I, I, I never even knew it existed. I had a software company in the late 90s and 2000, and we had optimized virtually every aspect of the operation and had been through the dot-com bust and then eventually the 08 market crash. And pricing was kind of like the last thing that we hadn't really touched. And I began to research and around 08, we decided to shift our deployment strategy from on-prem to the cloud. So back then, this was a very different time. You couldn't do security in four hours on AWS in the cloud and get that up and running. It took us a year. And so when we did that switch, we, we reached out for some guidance. And that's when I thought, oh my gosh, there's actually firms that do this. And I was also very dismayed that a lot of the firms that came in were talking to me about you know, monetizing planes, trains, and automobiles. And I have a computer science degree. I, I love the tech stuff. And I was really disappointed with the manner by which they were proposing, you know, coming from Ernst & Young, we had a lot of methodology, a lot of frameworks, and none of that stuff was really jihawing in my brain. I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. And so when I met the team at Software Pricing Partners, I realized, wow, this is the firm that created software pricing as a category in 82. And it's about monetizing intellectual property. And on a broader scale, it's about how we design products. And in fact, companies have been doing this since the 80s and 90s. How do we design products around the monetization strategy? How do we figure out how to build that into the overall customer experience? And so I never imagined uh, that I would be here. In fact, I was exiting that gig in 2013 and I was driving downtown for an interview to be a CEO of another software company here in our local market. And on a fluke, I just picked up the phone and talked to one of the partners here. And he complained that he was having problems finding a, a partner and that he really wanted to retire one day. And I just, I don't even know why I said it, but I just said, should you and I be having that conversation? And then as soon as I said it, I was like, what did I just say? <laughs> and one thing led to another. And I just did this radical career shift and since then, we've been on the journey of creating our own software and sort of morphing the consultancy into a more of a tech-enabled or hybrid kind of approach. And it's been the most complex work I've ever done and the most enjoyable work I've ever done. I get to talk to guys like you. I get to deal with software executives all day long. And it's, 
It's really been one of the most rewarding times of my life. It's pretty amazing that I got lucky enough to land accidentally in pricing. Kind of full circle there, it sounds like in some regards, right? You're being able to apply your software knowledge and experience. That helps us and our audience as we have that deep experience developing products and getting those out. That early consulting experience with ENY and and now bringing that back into the software pricing realm with with customers that you get to talk to all the time and help them. I did realize that when I was looking at your bio earlier, that connection between when you went looking for help and trying to find how do we price our products and the traditional wisdom out there at the time was not particularly relevant for that change that was going on and moving software into the cloud and thinking about it. That that's the, the company that helped you and and now you're with them too. So that makes good sense. You know, I, I came off of a project with Coca-Cola and at the time Coca-Cola Worldwide had this global infrastructure that was very dreamy and very advanced. You could be anywhere in the world, Nairobi, Egypt, and you could literally see everything as if you were in Atlanta, Georgia, where they were based. And one of the things at Ernst & Young that we spent a lot of time on was this fusion methodology. And it was about teaching clients frameworks and passing the baton to them so that they could both inherit and maintain and take what Ernst & Young built for them and morph it and keep it current. And so those frameworks and and pieces to the puzzle when i went through the pricing project i would spend another with software pricing partners i would spend another five years really reflecting with the partners here about that methodology about those frameworks of how to turn this into a on-par discipline with product management and we eventually had sort of monetization and product management and today we would tell you you know, for larger, more complicated software companies, you really do need a chief monetization officer. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But ideally, and that doesn't mean product can't own pricing. It just means that's kind of the eventual thing that happens when things get complex enough. And the reality is I often find product doesn't own pricing, right? But it's useful for us as product managers to understand how pricing is thought of and and what are the factors so we can contribute to that. It's an interesting dialogue because CPOs would at some point get PL responsibility for their product, which would pull sort of pricing over. But it, pricing as a discipline, pricing as a science is still pretty early, even though we've been doing this for a long time as software companies together. And pricing suffered from this idea that it's an attribute, you know, like the screen color or the experience of a particular feature or the tab order on a screen. You, know, you build this great product and then you go to launch and say, oh, gosh, we had to figure out how we're going to price this. And then two weeks later, you got this stuff that's going out to market. And that that's a really dangerous proposition because lots of really great products fail to meet their revenue objective, objectives and then they're retired, unfortunately. So in the who owns pricing is one of the most important discussions that you'll ever have. And in fact, the internal skill sets of being able to morph and keep the model current is really important because unlike static things like a car, you're not going to go out to your car and get an update and get a fifth wheel. But like tomorrow, you might get a new version of your software that you procured that has potentially groundbreaking features and capabilities that deliver an enormous amount of value. And so if product is right at the heart of all these new critical capabilities and the prioritization of them, it sort of begs the question that there should be some frameworks and skill sets that they have to begin to get an angle and a bead and what we call a perspective on their value. And that injection into product management for me personally, and also for our clients is one of the most important expansions in the product management field. 
Yeah, and I think that is, is a key part where product managers, not CPOs, but product managers should be contributing information to the discussion is we should have a pretty good understanding of the value that customers perceive in the product that we're providing. Because if we've done the work of understanding their problem, what their unmet needs are, and we, we've had those observations, those discussions with them, then we can carry that message forward. And so that's why it's important for us to be part of these, uh, at least have the pricing knowledge so we can be part of the discussions in some ways. Yeah, and you, you have the, the equivalent of the, the thumbprint, right? Mm-hmm. of the customers in right. that sense. And that those nuances and corner cases and bizarre ways that some customers use the software and the standard ways in which they use them, those are some of the most important inputs into the strategy that has to emerge, that has to address the customer mix, which is the broad array of customers that you serve. Otherwise, you end up with a strategy that works for some and, and not others, or it works really well for some. They pay a little bit and get a ton of value. And it doesn't work really well for others who pay a ton of money and get a really small amount of value. And so this this value discussion in product management is I'm excited that I'm being interviewed for these kinds of topics, because I think this is a time when this is rapidly becoming a discipline and a science. It's been that way for a long time, but it's being recognized as such for the first time ever. And people are using pretty sophisticated tools to come at those perspectives. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week, product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective it did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. Yeah, it seems like a, a lot of the discipline has increased in the last few years in part because of SaaS-type products, right? The, um, the move that you encountered that led you to try to find some pricing help, right, from the days of distributing software, you know, like we've sold cars now to more of that, that lease model in the, the SaaS and cloud. And I, I believe in pricing, there, there's some fundamental concepts, like you, you've emphasized value, right? Are we pricing on value? Are we pricing cost plus? Is it fixed per project? There's some fundamentals there that re- reach across different kinds of products. But we are focused on uh, B2B software sort of products. Can you give us some examples of things that you've worked in in there? Well, so everything that the firm has done is 100% focused on B2B software. And in fact, when we were uh, chatting earlier, I went back through the archives and even back in, I think it was 2005, there was a company called OpSource, which was building a SaaS enablement platform for Adobe and BMC and others to incubate and move their models over into SaaS. And so hmm. prior to that, I, I wanted to tell you the story of the Black Monday. If you, uh, I wasn't that old, but I was old enough to remember Black Monday. And that was the sort of first recession prior to the Reagan years. And 
back then there was no cloud. So you shipped software on-premise. And one of the things that software pricing partners invented was this concept called financial overlays. So this was back in the 90s. And a financial overlay, you don't have to pay me a half a million for this big piece of software up front. You can pay for it. Guess how? As a subscription. So it's subscription billing independent of the deployment platform. And SaaS is an amalgamation of a lot of things. It's the deployment model. It's the payment term that's spread out over time. And it's uh, the removal of the heavy equipment, if you will, at the customer site that needs to run all of that. And there's this world there that was constructed, but I was always fascinated before I got here on just the history. And so the other fun uh, story that I always liked was right before they came out with the network. And I still remember the time in the lab at college when I was tethered to an ethernet port and it was a single CPU box. And if you were buying CAD and engineering software at the time, they'd charge you 50 grand. And, you know, Chad, you could use it. And if I wanted to use it and cheat, I had to bump you out of the chair. And there's just no way that both of us could use it at the same time. So it was kind of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy that I could get paid fairly for that license. And then Apollo, I think, first came out. And then later, the network came out. And if you remember Flex LM, the licensing manager, and then eventually Globetrotter came out with this idea that we could pass a license out on a network and it was called a network licensed server. So you had 20, 30 CAD engineering companies of the time kind of freak out and say, oh crap, like how are we going to make money if they can dish a license out over the network? And this was actually the first 20 or 30 pricing projects in the world. And what came out of that is what I built my software company on. It was called the concurrent user model. It was a monetization approach that said, hey, we can dish out network licenses and those create more value, but we can also charge based on the number that are in use at one time, which is easier to do on-prem than the cloud. And so that sort of history, if you will, was one of the reasons that I fell in love with the company and sort of the career twist, because everything here is software, everything here is intellectual property. And there are very distinct practices that you don't really want to do in a B2B setting. And of course, one of those is I ask you, Chad, what would you be willing to pay for my AI capabilities? And while you might answer, you have no idea what you're going to be able to do that. And I might ask a bunch of people what that looks like and produce a lot of really fancy charts and graphs that are not based in any sort of science or rational sort of study that underpins the accuracy of that. In fact, there's many papers that talk about the inaccuracy of that. I can't even give you a conjoint analysis and give you two options where one is a slightly different price than the other, because as soon as you see that, your human brain goes higher price, higher quality, lower price, lower quality, and that throws the study for a big loop. Mm -hmm. And so we have to be very creative in how we come at that sensing and pressure testing what customers would be paid. And back to the tangent here, you asked about value pricing. And I think that unfortunately, right. that's often confused with charging what the market will bear on a customer by customer basis. And so that if you and I bought the same thing, we paid sometimes wildly different pricing and that uh, net prices that I think that that is not only hugely problematic, it's the opposite of transparency. And every time you do that, you put a data point out in the market that somebody's going to find and they always find it. And it right. creates a lot of problems in the sort of uh, defending value. And so what we talk about value based, it carries with it the concept of market fairness and transparency. So in order to charge for value, you're striking the balance across all of your customers to keep things simple 
and you're keeping that net price calculation for you and me the same. And you might be willing to not be completely angry with me on a plane ride when I tell you that I got a 5% promotion as a sales promotion when I bought a CRM system. But if I told you that I paid a quarter million for what you paid a million for, I mean, you know, you get off that plane, you're ripping that thing out tomorrow just out of spite, right? And so right. The, the value story, especially in product management, those nuances that we went back to give you all the Lego kits on the ground so that the strategy and the mechanics that you come up with can treat customers fairly. And I can't tell you how many times I've been in conversations where people are like, yes, but if I move over to this big company vertical, they have a different willingness to pay. So I want to charge them more. And in fact, many bigger companies have less of a willingness to pay. Like, you know, so, so this idea of B2B transactions is a group phenomenon and many of the techniques that you might be entranced with on the B2C side don't, in fact, work on B2B at all. And so that methodology and those frameworks, again, in activating a handoff between a consultancy and an organization that hires that consultancy has never been more important because this skill set that you're that we're talking about here today is an execution skill set. And you, I'm sure you've read the news about inflation coming and he or she who gears their model to more rapidly deploy changes to packaging and pricing and pressure test and understand how customers respond to that are going to totally rule the roost in the new world. The ones who maybe aren't activating product management or are not seeing those nuances or maybe once a year or they haven't touched their, pri their pricing in two or three years are going to get hurt. It's, a, it's going to be a big challenge given the pandemic. So there's lots of elements in there that you refer to. I, I want to try to to peel a few apart, right? So I, I appreciate sure. all the complexity you kind of brought into the history there, right? Going from the per seat physical, this is the physical seat model, to the name seat, to the concurrent user pricing, mm -hmm. and then how we think about the virtual these different options that are available. Yeah. And, and then what does it mean to have value-based pricing, and is that consistent or not? And what I've seen, if the market is large enough for the organizations that are doing value-based pricing on the value for the organization and it's not consistent, well, then you have this other industry that pops up of consultants that come in and help you fix your pricing, right? And, and there's tremendous <laughs> pressure brought on to, on to bear there. And you mentioned some factors in here, like, you know, we have the product, we have the packaging of that, the pricing that goes along with. Talk about the approaches to pricing. What, what are kind of these big factors or pieces that are involved? Well, so we break, so this would have come out probably in the early 80s, and we came up with sort of these three pillars that most comprehensively talk about the different facets of intellectual property. And the first one, and, and a lot of this now is in the blogosphere, but the first one was licensing. You probably have heard of a licensing metric, a value metric. Uh, these are all terms that relate back to the quantity field of the contract, but in fact, they describe the ultimate range of deals that the sales team might be dealing with on the sales floor. And in fact, the decision of what you decide to count is one of the most important decisions that you'll ever make. And that uh, unit of measure, if pick the wrong thing, then as our deals get bigger, sales teams walk into the door with a $1 million list and the competitive set has a $20,000 list and things get really weird really fast. Or we go the opposite direction and say, well, uh, I'm just going to charge you a flat fee, Chad. Quantity's always one. It's a site license. Go do whatever you want and get a ton of value. And the problem with that is 
it's very easy to sell. Good luck getting an upgrade, right? So if you want to activate aspects of expansion sales and cross sells and upsells, you have to march your way through not just licensing, but two more disciplines. And the second discipline, of course, hits squarely on your shoulders and it's the offering model. And we chose that phrase because in our history, packaging in the 80s and 90s was the <laughs> physical CD-ROM. Right. So the offering model, also the reason we chose that phraseology is because when you're monetizing intellectual property, you're monetizing capabilities. It doesn't matter if they're instantiated or created underneath a product feature or inside of a service. In fact, many of our customers are service organizations that build products over the years. And services is a wonderful test bed by which to launch new capabilities. It's very easy to launch a new service than it is to go code it, right? Depending on the scope of the service, of course. And so offering is, the offering model is really, a, this is pretty largely misunderstood too. This is not marketing speak, buying personas and other things. This is looking at how you describe your ideal customers and their usage patterns, but most importantly, not just how they use, but how that value is extracted and then how they take that value and turn it around for the second step of value to their customers. And that value chain is really hugely important to understand. And the offering model is trying to capture that and address a wide range of different customers that maybe aren't as different as you think. And so a lot of people try to say, well, when we swap industry verticals or SICs, we're going to have a different strategy and there's a different market segment we have to go after. But in fact, many of those industry verticals collapse down into very distinct groups of how people use your software and how they get value. And coming at that and defining that and uncovering that, discovering that is one of the most crucial things that you can do to keep your packaging really simple. Otherwise, you have packaging coming out your noses, or you might run the risk of what we call hypergearing. Hypergearing is when I say well, I have these 10 features. I have this dashboard, Chad, but on the basic edition, you can only have two dashboards and seven reports. But if you upgrade to the middle tier edition, you can have four dashboards and nine reports. And that's just one of the features. And then you go to the next feature, and everything's like, and nobody in that paradigm ever sat back and said, what would it be like to buy this? Because the, the buyer now has to think, well, do I, Chad, do I need Seven da is seven dashboards enough? I didn't even think about, well, what if I need 10? And then a salesperson has to do the song and dance. And that's just one of the 17 features that are hyper geared. And so the offering model really connects to the sales floor in the intersection of pricing and selling. And if done correctly, makes deal velocity go gangbusters. If done incorrectly, just puts glue and molasses into the sales dialogue. And that piece to the puzzle back to product management is getting an appreciation of today's product managers of the trade-offs and sacrifices that you would make for simplicity so that that dialogue is kept simple, which is a really hard thing to do because if you think every month that goes by, the product's getting more and more and more complicated, right? Two months from today, we just blended in a joint venture with a visualization company. And guess what? We're charging based on this technique and they're charging us based on users. So now we have this like extra cost we have to account for. And we start like gluing these things onto our, our pricing approach. And before you know it, our salespeople have to have calculators and they have to have Excel spreadsheets and they have to do all this song and dance. And that takes me 12 hours to produce, you know, seven different quotes that you need. And so you're, you're, you're trying to become the antithesis of that 
that destination point in the offering model. Okay. One key takeaway for me, and I'm used more accustomed to the packaging language, right? So the, the offering model concept of how do we package the, in one sense, the menu of capabilities that we can provide customers into something that creates the most value for them and often in return for the most value for us too as the organization, right? So we're trying to optimize pricing. And a lot of that is to simplify sales conversations. So the salespeople are, are enabled to, to do this in a meaningful way and also not f- feel in some way kind of, you know, this is just kludgy and it seems different for every customer. And I feel like I'm kind of making things up a bit as, as I go through. But but there was an aspect there I just want to go back to and and challenge a little bit, which what you're talking about value is in terms of not just value to your B2B customer, but also value to their customer. And that's what we take into account. And and maybe the nuance here is important. I just think of that as a collection of, well, of course, that's the value, right? We're, we're creating value for you as a business because it creates value for your customer as well. Well, that value that the user of the software, the direct user of the software and how that value scales might be different than how it scales for the customer. And understanding that nuance is really important because how they're taking the output and the insights from your software and melding that with their products and services might just work differently. So that's the first nuance. The, the second nuance is that that two-step value process is very important because often when you make a decision of licensing, for example, I say, hey, I'm going to take a percent of the revenue. That might not be appropriate if you don't understand whose value is whose. And so you want to be really careful that in your approach that you don't carve out a strategy that tries to, to fence in the part of the value stream that's blended. And so, for example, if I'm a dermatology-like area and you want to take a percent of the revenue and I have a thousand patients, but then there's another dermatology office down the street and they do nothing but plastic surgery, you know, whose value in that percent of revenue are you taking? Now, the buyer of the really high-end plastic surgery facility might be saying, hey, Chad, uh, that's my Rolodex, that's my, you know, and so what you're looking and hunting for is the backwash that comes into the sales organization on the phone or through customer success for those friction points. And I've always found it very helpful to get very specific on those two parts of the journey to really fully understand what that looks like and not to blend it together, but to dig into it. Okay. And if even if what you say was true and it's the same and it's equal, it's just good to know, right? Like it doesn't have to always right. be different. It can be very aligned already, but but don't make the assumption it's always aligned. Yeah. And I don't mean that it's equal. It may not be aligned. That's important. And my business customers, customers, that might look different for each of the each of their customers, right? So based on who they're serving. So okay, understanding that value contribution to the bigger picture can be helpful. Okay. There's really good reasons why I'm not a pricing analyst. <laughs> uh, we, we could teach you. Uh, so, so by the way, you want to know what the hallmark of a great pricing consultant, we call it a monetization consultant that understands licensing, packaging, and pricing. We Absolutely. tend to focus around pricing is that they have a software background. Because ah. if I was to hire somebody who didn't understand the software business model and all of the complexities of what happens when you make this little decision and how it ripples into sales ops and the sales conversation and marketing and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I can build on your software foundation and teach you the frameworks and the methodology. But if I have to teach you the software business model plus 
monetization, I'm sunk before we even get started. It just, I just can't, it's too many years. Yeah. Too many years. So, so the third discipline that wraps around this then of course, is the one that we started with, which is pricing and, and pricing is a huge science and there's a lot of nuances to the B2B. And in fact, we use technology for this, but one of the most crucial things to do is not get yourself trapped in PowerPoint. Rather, anything that you wrap together, you really want to have a perspective on simulating what that looks like. And in our parlance, you've got to be able to take in the wide variety of deal data and deal line item data and all its nasty dirtiness and get it cleaned and get it structured. And then you have to be able to say, hey, I'm, I'm switching licensing and I'm looking at some new packaging and I'm looking at some new pricing. So you got to do the homework assignment that kind of says, how does all this flow through in the future? Who pays more? Who pays less? And then secondly, what might this look like so that in that perspective and in that first day of rollout, you have a mark on the wall to say, look, we're targeting a half a million dollar uptick here in the first three months. And by doing that, I can measure now if I'm striking that path. And the second reason that you really want to do that is because willingness to pay is very thorny and requires a context by which to sit in to even have the dialogue. So it's meaningless for me to go pick a CIO and ask them what they pay for an AI engine. But if you were in the sales process, I could probably engage in a dialogue. And if you bought the software and I kind of did a deep dive and the product managers and other things got involved, we can kind of dissect and take a look and determine, did we leave money on the table? Did we not leave money on the table? And there's very Mm -hmm. specific practices that we can do there, but anchoring in the backdrop of a transaction is crucial because it's the old adage of, hey, my house is worth a million dollars and I put it on the market and the highest bid was 600. Well, I guess the, it was only worth 600. And so right. you, your perspective that you're building this, this asset transfer library, this thing that you'll pass on to a new owner one day is saying, when I make these kinds of changes, I have these kinds of responses and I can show you that my forecast in the next couple of years, you can rely on that. And I'm not going to show you a forecast and deal data where you got 80% off and I, and I paid a full list because the buyer is going to look at that and say, well, the forecast is kind of bogus. We'll just discount it 80% because it's meaningless because you guys are all over the place when it comes to market fairness. And so asset transfer value means that during the execution, we are validating constantly the hypotheses that we make in packaging and pricing. And if we're always creating new product and new capabilities, we should always be validating and pushing on the willingness to pay gas by saying, maybe we should raise list prices a little bit over here in a controlled manner and test to see what happens. And I don't mean like A-B testing because that doesn't work in B2B. I mean, having a perspective that's well vetted and having the courage to make a change and then having a sophisticated roadmap to bring you more value should you have misestimated that. And that new skill set is the one that I was learning post my services engagement in 08 was kind of trying to figure out how do I turn this into a business process? I see the discipline. I see the science. I love it. I see the frameworks. Love it. Now, how do I stand this up in the software company to make it real? And that, that turns out to be a really hard journey. <laughs> There, there is a lot of lessons learned on that, but it's a, it's a well worth it journey. When we're discussing pricing for, for any environment, this is certainly a thorny B2B sort of environment where we're 
providing pricing to them. And it is, as we talked about before, related to the value created for their customers. It, it seems like there's art and science here. And the, the art aspect really relies on the experience, right? That there is the experience in, the, in, in several industries about what has worked and what hasn't worked. And then the science of, well, what is that maximum price, the optimal price point, should I say maximum, the optimal price point so that we know we're not leaving money on the table, that it was the fair deal for everyone involved, and we walk away knowing we did the right thing. And a lot of businesses don't know if their pricing is at, at a, the right price point or not, right? This is hard, hard to approach. So well, we've discussed- How would they? They have no process by which to explore right. it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> So we've discussed lots of different aspects of this. I suspect there are more resources to dive into at your website. Is, is that true? What, what, what kind of things might, might we find there? Well, softwarepricing.com has tons of eBooks and articles. And for those that are interested, they can reach out. There's a resource center they can get access to as well. Excellent. So that, that's a good place to go for people that want to dive into this more. It is important for us as, as product people to be aware of some of the factors involved in price. We are often the voice of the customer in some sense, bringing that back into the organization and we can convey how, how they think about pricing and us doing a good job of just marrying that is very helpful to uh, our marketing department and others involved in pricing as well. As listeners know, we do like innovation quote. What, what did you bring us and tell us what that means? The quote when you asked me for it is one that we use a lot here in the walls of software pricing partners, and that is you have to have a perspective on your value. And that might sound intuitively obvious, but in fact, it's everything that we talked about today. And the example that I would probably use is just happened to me this morning. You know, my son, he's eight and my daughter, she's five. They, they want unlimited screen time this weekend because we're about to get hit with a bunch of snow here in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that, that's what the kids want. And in this example, I'm going to propose that the kids are the customers. And of course, what the parents want is maybe something a little bit different. And I think that too often in the product design process, we put that customer at the center, which is okay. But I would propose you have to put the software company sort of at the center along with the customer and bring in that perspective because you do get the value that you have the confidence and that you can demand on the sales floor. And having a perspective and a library of value, just like you'd have a library of estimates in Agile or some other context, is really important so that during the product design process, when you bring something new, you already have that perspective of, oh, this is where it's going to fit in the offering model, or maybe it's a brand new product. And this is how we're going to price it because it's similar in value to this thing over here. And getting that perspective and that library and that skill set activated inside of the four walls of the virtual software companies these days is, is really crucial in getting that value. And if you think about having that perspective, if you will, it means that that carries with it the assumption that that means my perspective should be validated. I should treat that as a a strong hypothesis, and it can get stronger over the years, but we really do need to validate and revalidate and do things to make sure that that perspective is on par with what is out in the market and other things. And so that, that perspective of activating it, it's funny to hear you say as product managers, you know, you need to have a voice in pricing. In fact, our, our, our process includes that for that very reason, because product managers have this absolute wealth of information. We should be close to the customer and have insights that others don't. Good. Thank you for sharing that quote with us. It's interesting to think about 
in that context, our personal value too, right? What is our brand as product managers and personal value and our perspective on that? So that's just what came to my mind as you were discussing that as well. Once again, listeners would love, I'm sure, to get more resources about pricing. Tell us how they can find out more about you and about the organization. LinkedIn is always a great one, but it's really softwarepricing.com, I think, is kind of the entry point there to begin to read and digest a broad array of topics. And the, the topic I would start with, frankly, is the one that nobody ever discusses, not even on the sales floor, except for our customers. And that is what's your pricing philosophy? Mm. Do you believe in treating companies fairly? And once you tease out your philosophy, things like posting pricing on your website or not, those all become obvious decisions. I mean, nobody wants to post their pricing if you can call up and get a different price, right? Like that's just a really not a great outcome for the sales team. So if you can get a unification around the company's philosophy of pricing, that to me kind of puts the frame around all of this so that you can seek out a methodology and a process and things that align to that philosophy. So for example, if you fundamentally believe that Chad, you should pay twice as much as I do for software because you're in the banking industry and I'm over in manufacturing, you know, a lot of the stuff we talked about today, you don't even need to, don't even come visit the site, right? Because that just doesn't work in that sort of parlance. And you really want to make a decision in the fork of the road about your philosophy, because that's how you want to treat your customers. And that will be created inside of that design of the product. And once you get anchored on that, the rest becomes a, a very straightforward kind of journey, I think, a much more straightforward journey. Thank you for sharing that and for letting us know where to go for more resources. And again, that's softwarepricing.com. Great place. I will put that in the show notes along with a, a link to your LinkedIn profile if people want to reach out directly and make connection with you. And Chris, I so much appreciate your time this morning and helping us think about, think through some of the complexities and nuances in uh, pricing, especially in the B2B software world. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. And listeners, once again, we have those show notes for you, a written summary of everything that we discussed, including that one page action guide. You'll find that at productmasterynow.com slash 376. Everyone keep innovating. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.